Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can sign up to be a producer. You can submit the questions that we will be using uh, to discuss in the show today. We have a uh, panelist, uh, panel full of experts in media and production, as well as our education um, experts are here too. So feel free to submit your education, general education questions. Uh, we'll be looking forward to our second hour whenever we focus on the topic of subject matter experts. Dave Troutman's here to lead us into that. So um, stay tuned uh, for our second hour. In the meantime, we'll go into our first hour of questions. John, what do we have? Our first question comes from Brody Brazil in San Francisco. Initial issue with Rode Wireless Go 2 connected via Wi-Fi to Rodecaster Pro 2. When not speaking, normal room, to room tone fades away after a few seconds, almost like gating. All processing is off. Any others with this issue? Go ahead, Jesse. I don't have this issue specifically with the, the Rode Go because I don't use the Rode Go, but there's this class of equipment that seems to fall between consumer and prosumer, and I, I don't have a name for it other than influencer-grade uh, equipment. And it seems like there is often a lot of under the hood processing that you can't control on equipment of in this class. So if this is a real concern, I would consider going up to the next tier, either uh, uh, prosumer or professional gear, because we have this issue. It's particularly with um, Sony that this crops up with us a lot is that they're just there seems to be a lot of software running that processes of picture and audio signal that you cannot control. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I just wanted to add that it's possible that these are characteristics of battery saving. If it's not processing, then it just sort of fades out and preserves battery. But I, I don't use one, so I don't know if the specs uh, indicate that. Jeffrey. If you don't have a lavalier attached to it, attach one and see how it goes. And if you do have one attached, detach it and use the uh, use the mics that are on the thing and see how that goes. Uh, move it around, make sure that it's in a good spot and it's not pointed away from your voice. That's the most important. That's the one thing I don't like about these is they always take this microphone and it always points that way rather than upward where your voice is coming from. So uh, I would give those things a try and see if that uh, solves your issue. And if it doesn't, then it might be hardware and you might want to talk to Rode about it. Yeah, that might be helpful about uh, figuring out whether it is in fact battery saving and whether it's coming from the microphone, the transmitter, uh, or if it's being done on the receiving end, at which place, in which case you could probably figure out which side you may have to replace in order to remove uh, that behavior. Hope it, hope it's helpful for you, Brody. Let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Clive Ludford in Kingston, Jamaica. How is the audio for the coronation being done? I see no visible microphones. Is there a body pack on every participant or are there plant mics all over? Secondly, how are the choir and soloists mic'd? Is it just the great acoustics of the space? Dave, did you get a chance to uh, check out the broadcast? Uh, no, but I am extremely familiar with broadcasts from those locations. Um, I'll be the uh, honorary Brit here today. I'm uh, 
one of the colonists from Canada, so we pay attention to these sorts of things. But I'm also a member of the Society of Television Lighting Directors in the UK, and they are very interested in this aspect too, mostly for lighting, but they do include audio. So I'll give you a walkthrough. Uh, outside the uh, entrance, uh, there are microphones way up high to get crowd noise and to hear the cheers. Then in the vestibule just inside where people, you know, either take off their coat if it's raining or mingle with other people for a short while, there are no microphones so that they can be private in their conversations. When they leave the vestibule and come into the main seating area, which are very long and wide, uh, then there's a little bit of microphone and there are two or three of them above them, way up in the ceiling. Uh, there's a, a level, there's almost a walkway at the top of the columns. And this is where a lot of the cameras are mounted as well. So those microphones are meant just to catch the hubbub, the people mingling and talking to each other without being close enough to make out what anyone says distinctly. Then you're into the front vestibule where the major guests are and where the royal family would sit. And then beyond that, you have the choir area. And in all of those areas, there are columns and there are seating areas. And there are sort of, if you've ever been in a cathedral, there's a lot of places where Say if you're playing hide and seek with a three-year-old, there's lots of places to hide things. So it's I liked your suggestion, plant mics, mics inside the plants and that sort of thing. That's a little risky to do because you're too close to the people and you'll actually hear what they're saying. It's a privacy issue mostly with the BBC to only hear what you're supposed to hear and not inadvertently hear some other prime minister calling out some other guy. Up at the front, then they do have the chance to put body packs on the key players, the the um of course, all of the clergy up there, if they have speaking roles in the ceremony, will have a body pack. And they're very good at wearing them, and they're mounted inside their suit so that they don't make any noise. Uh, there are microphones on the thrones. Uh, it's, not hard, it's not easy to see them unless you know where to look. But they've always been there, and actually they were quite large in 1954 when last they crowned somebody in England. Uh, the other uh, thing is for the choir there are actual microphones in front of each of the singers. So they're mounted on the rails in front where the music is and that. So they're able to mix that and make a very clear sound. But there's also omni mics mounted just outside the choral area, one on each side, which catch the echo and the, and the chamber sound. Um, as it travels through the church, it'll bounce off the far wall at the entrance and come charging back again. And it's an enormously stimulating sound. So when the choir gets involved, they pull up those mics and give you this large sound. I think they're doing it in surround a little bit this year, but not with surround mics. They're just giving us a sort of 5-1 experience as well. I haven't seen anyone broadcasting it, and our national broadcaster doesn't do 5-1, so they don't advertise it either. But I'm sure they're recording it that way for future distribution. And then the couple themselves, uh, uh, the king and the queen now, uh, sit and, and are addressed and have to answer. And in that way, they hide a mic right close on the arm of the chair where it's going to get the answer. And when he is declared and does his, his own service declaration, uh, then we can all hear it. And it's usually a very quiet room when a ceremony is happening. People rustle a little bit, but it's far enough away from the main action that you're hardly ever going to pick that up. So if you've seen some of the weddings that are held there, this same procedure applies, and if you've seen some of the other ceremonies that are held out of there, funerals, for instance, um, they have standard microphone locations set so that the cameras don't see them, 
and the people in the crowd aren't even aware of them most times. Fantastic. So you were saying, Dave, that um, even though this is a generational event, there are some um, similar events that they have uh, in the interim that uh, allow them to be practiced for these. That's right. When Prince Philip uh, had his funeral, they used the same sort of layout. Um, there's no in-state ceremony. It's just a, a funeral service or a memorial service with in dignitaries from around the world. And that's their biggest concern is when you get that many dignitaries in a room, and it's a big room. Uh, and if you're in London anytime, be sure to take the tour because it's quite a building. Uh, as well, there's a whole lot of lighting that goes on there that is quite dramatic. And the BBC are very proud of the fact that they can light that thing for television. And television in the 50s required a heck of a lot of light. Now, with our mobile cameras and our PTZs and stuff, we can hide them in various places for angles they couldn't get before. But also the lighting and the stained glass and everything is more obvious now with the more sensitive cameras that they're using. Nice. I wouldn't mind taking the audio video tour if I uh, could, could vouch for such. Thank you, Dave. Let's You're go to our next question. Our next question comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. For a Remy home production system, what surge or voltage protection do you recommend? Thanks. Jeffrey, you want to take a stab at this? Uh, well, I don't have a Remy system, of course. Remy is a remote, ad, a remote system. So basically, if you want to put a production house into your house so you can run shows remotely from anything from sound to, uh, to video, uh, then you can do so. And that is the thing. It's, it's the question of what you'll have for gear. Um, for surge voltage protection, uh, for uh, if you're, you're using standard PCs, so standard, P, uh, standard PC UPS might, uh, might be the best thing. What I would probably do if, if for an uh, overall protection is to have most of my boxes on on a ups and then probably have like a home system like a generac sitting outside uh, and uh, checking more about the fact of the latency of the switchover uh if anything and also make sure that your your network's also on some sort of ups so i would single the ups's for those quick you know the power goes out for a quick second but when you're talking about longer term like 15 to an hour long uh, type of system, then you might want to have something separate uh, on the PCs and then an overall thing, like I said, a Generac outside that can uh, cover you for a couple hours. Yeah, I agree with uh, Jeffrey's assessment. It's a bit of a quality and quantity assessment. Anytime you're dealing with your surge suppression and if you include the UPS as well, um, you can get a greater quantity, um, a greater uptime, um, but that will your cost also has to be divided into how much quality that you built into the surge suppression as well. Um, typical surge um, UPS systems are square wave, but you can get a pure sine wave that's a little um, little superior as, as far as uh, sensitive equipment for audio and video. Um, that may reduce your budget for your uptime, though, if you uh, decide to focus on the quality versus the quantity. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Brett Ramsey in Melbourne. I have a WD Western Digital MyBook Thunderbolt external hard drive set up as RAID 1. One disk has failed, and Western Digital say I must use the, exactly the same model to drive to replace it. 
Western Digital no longer makes the green drive. Anybody tried replacing with another drive, say Western Digital Red or Blue? Go, Jesse. First of all, it's good that you were doing RAID 1 and not RAID 0. You have uh, saved this from being a complete catastrophe, and now it's just a hassle. I would hew as close as possible to what they're recommending if you're trying to restore a RAID configuration. And uh, moving forward, I would consider moving over to something like Chronosync Express, where you have a third-party software. You've got your two drives, and a piece of third-party software makes those mirrored copies instead of relying on a RAID system. Um, Jeffrey, you might disagree with that. I'd be interested if you did. Uh, but yeah, yeah, always, always do it as uh, mirrors or redundant backups, not as striped across multiple drives as, as one backup. Jeffrey? Yeah, whenever I buy a drive, I always try to buy its companion to it. Um, and most of the time, it's not like I buy the two drives at the same time. Sometimes I'll wait a little bit and then get the, the exact same version of that uh, drive once again, and just for this reason. Now, Western Digital, uh, Western Digital, if you talk to uh, somebody at Western Digital, they might have a line on how you can get the drive that you need right there. If they don't, then uh, that's that's kind of sad for them because that would that's a that's a turning point. I, I'm not a big fan of Western Digital. I'll tell you that straight up. Um, and uh, but uh, the one thing about these drives is that it yeah if you have to match the drive make sure you always have that copy but also there is a lot of local companies if if you take it to a third-party company it's not cost thousands of dollars like it used to um it's going to be a little bit more reasonable in price uh so if you if you want to do it on home and you're looking for something you know uh going online just be careful and make sure that uh, you know when you're checking eBay and stuff like that, be careful that you're not going to get swindled or you're not going to get a dead drive off of it. Jesse, more to add? Yes, um, though you have stacked the deck in your favor with RAID 1 instead of RAID 0, I, you're not quite out of the woods because if those two drives came off the same assembly line at the same time and were in the same batch that has the same faulty component that caused this problem, it's... Uh, uh, I would consider it likely that the other drive might be on the cusp of failing, so I would address this as quickly as possible and plan to replace that first drive as well. So as you're doing this replacement for the second one, uh, consider getting two drives and retiring the the uh, partner of the drive that failed. Sound advice. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Since YouTube has eased its restriction on profanity and demonetization of content, I have noticed a slight uptick in more casual language on some of my subscribed channels. This doesn't bother me, but I am curious if others have seen this also. Go ahead, John. Mr. Preto? My mute wasn't working there. Yes, I, I just checked. I followed 200 channels on YouTube. And I am seeing much, much more profanity on, on my channels, at least. I wonder if there's a unit of measurement to uh, measure profanity, maybe the cuss meter or something, perhaps. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Maybe you're just watching the wrong channels. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's actually really funny. I, and I'm really surprised that YouTube has not implemented a bleep feature because they can actively predict when somebody's going to swear and having you know having some sort of 
boop or blop or whatever that comes right before that happens. That that's that's that sounds like something that that could be done in today's day and age, and YouTube could definitely cultivate on that. Now, uh, bringing that up, yeah, it definitely uh, it definitely can be concerning for some. But the one thing that the YouTube creators don't realize is even though they've relaxed those rules, it doesn't mean that they're going to get more monetization off of it. Because the bottom line is if somebody uh, comes in and says, I want to advertise on your platform, but I don't want the swearing, they're going to turn that off. So you're never going to see an ad for company a or company b because of the fact that you know they're they're just not going to be on that uh channel that promotes uh the the language like that so uh you don't end up winning off of that by swearing a lot and uh so that's why a lot of the shows that i oh all the shows i do are pretty clean and uh and the stuff that i watch for the most part is pretty clean uh for that matter so i'm not i'm you know it's not that I don't like swearing and I'll do it. It's just, it, I don't feel that it's, it's appropriate in a lot of shows and it needs to send a statement when you do it. Jesse, would you like to weigh in? Yeah. Yeah. I used to cuss on my channel and it took one email from one person who watched the channel to say, uh, I love your content, but I can't share it with anyone in my school because you swear too much. And that was the that was an immediate moratorium on all cussing on the channel. All it takes is one email to realize how much you're limiting yourself by kind of pushing pushing those edges. Yeah, I think uh, we might be able to put a metric on this. It might be BPM, bleeps per minute, and perhaps a uh, counter one innuendo approximation. So... That might be something you might want to check for some of your YouTube metrics. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. How does one correctly size up for a UPS for a workstation? One very robust PC made for ArcGIS use, three 27-inch monitors, auxiliary mic, speakers, LED lamp, standing desk, etc. John Preto has offered his expertise. Go ahead, John. Go to YouTube, look for Dave's Garage, and look for his UPS video. It's fantastic. All this time, I thought VA stood for watts, and it doesn't in the UPS world. There's a difference between VA and watts, which helps you in the, in these calculations tremendously. And he goes over the three different types of UPSs as well. It's a great video. Absolutely. Volt amps are not watts. Um, and the other thing about uptime is it, also depends on what your required uptime is. Sometimes when purchasing insurance, people will use the metric of how much will it cost them if something fails in their production. Uh, something similar could be used in that equation when factoring your uptime for UPS. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Any recommendations for a 24 to 32 inch 1080p production and editing display in the $2,500 range? All right. We didn't have anyone weigh in, but um, I'm assuming, um, Scott, with that, it's not a high spec monitor, but if you would like color accuracy, then um, the 1080p in that uh, range may, um, may cost you a bit more. Uh, John, would you like to help out? Uh, in the chat, Mickey Macachor says Sony LMD B240. 
Thank you very much. And um, I'm curious, is that a LCD or OLED display? Go ahead, Jeffrey. If you're talking on the consumer side, then Dell would be the probably the monitors to take a look at. They've been a, they've won awards for the last few years with their quality. Uh, but if you're going for the professional, I, I was trying to find something uh, 2432. There's a lot of 2432 monitors out there, uh, from TVs to monitors. I wouldn't recommend using a TV at all. But uh, you know, like for instance, I have an Nvidia, or I'm sorry, a, a, a ViewSonic that I look at which is 32 inches, but it is 4K. And you might want to think about 4K monitors uh, in that range and just dumb it down to 1080p. Yeah, it appears that um, the one recommended from our chat is a HD LCD uh, display. So helpful there. I do know too that um, some of the re um, manufacturers like Dell do use the major manufacturers panels although they may tune them uh, to different uh, criteria. LG and Sony uh, do produce LCD panels. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What is your opinion on the Golden Age Pre-73 Mark III mic preamp? All right, well, we didn't get anyone weigh in on that. On the pre, like preamp. So, uh, apologies, uh, Andy. Didn't get a chance to check that out myself. Um, age pre. I'm not actually familiar with that uh, um, manufacturer as well. Are they um, more prosumer or professional? Yeah. Apologies. Um, one thing that uh, we're, we'd like to remind folks, too, though, it's about the 20-minute part of the show. Please vote on the questions that uh, you would like to see answered. Um, also, submit your questions. If you've never yet submitted a question, you can do so by going to officehours.global. Um, click the Join Us link. Afterwards, that'll get you signed up for our email. And you can sign up for Mukana. That'll help you to be a producer of the show. You get to determine the direction of our show. Also, it's helpful to, uh, to put those questions in. We do open the questions to being answered uh, even bef well before the show. So it does give our producers some time to do some research. Um, Jeffrey, did you find something on that uh, preamp? No. I'm on the next question. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I guess we've we've moved on. All right. So feel free to <laughs> to, to join. Obviously, we've we've switched. Uh, feel free to uh, to join the show uh, with your questions and vote on the questions that we have to uh, to make a determination about what we handle first and what we spend time on. All right, uh, John. Let's go to our next question. The next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. The Insta360 Flow gets great reviews from the YouTube rock stars like iJustine and Marcus Brownlee, but it gets roundly trounced by YouTubers with very few hits. Is it just clickbaiting? All right, Jeffrey, we'll have your answer on this one. <laughs> so, no, it's just the style of review that happens. When you get a product, like for instance, I'll, I'll just, uh, this is the Obsbot uh, Tiny 4K. 
And uh, when it came out, it was really not that great. Uh, but with software and firmware updates, uh, it's it's changed. Mevo Start is a perfect example on that. When I first got that thing, they said, they said oh, we're going to have NDI in it. We're going to have this in it, that in it. And it had a lot of problems. And it took about six months for those problems to kind of resolve. Now, I'll use a Mevo Start in my production because I know that it can give me some sort of NDI uh, output or input that that actually works for me. So a lot of these reviews, they try to keep that open mind and they try to review what they see. And it's usually a lot of times it's just the unboxing and a first look type of system. Just the facts is what they're going for because they know that maybe there is a problem, but it can be fixed down the line. Uh, and uh, the, another thing that the, another way that people will do it is a pro and con. Uh, so they'll kind of say, okay, right now we do have, there's, we, we do see a problem with this, but uh, these are the pros that outweigh it. And then, of course, it depends on whose eyes that are watching the product in there. So you have some people that are really going deep dive like we do. So we know that when we hook up the Insta360 link into Zoom, that we're if, if anything changes, all of a sudden the, it goes out to a widescreen and that becomes an annoyance for us. So we talk about that. But for the most part, a lot of people, they're, they're, they're getting an Insta360 link to be a part of their weekly Zoom call. And it doesn't matter if it zooms in or zooms out for them. And if it does, they just fix it and go from there. So it really depends on how the influencer will have their channel, uh, send their channel, because a lot of influencers will not give out negative reviews. And uh, and if you find if you really need that negative review uh, type situation, then you'll have to find influencers that focus on products that don't work, because there are some of them out there. Go ahead, John. Yeah, and it also might be the reviewer might be reviewing for a specific audience, which I think Jeffrey touched on a little bit. If I'm reviewing a uh, Insta360 Flow and it's for your typical uh, person who's an aspiring YouTuber, it might be a great starting point for a camera. But if you're doing it for someone who needs it for a high-level production, it might be a terrible camera. So it might just be the, the person's perspective based on who they're reviewing for. Yeah, I, I agree with what's been said. Another element is that, uh, particularly if you're an up-and-coming uh, reviewer, um, just uh, agreeing with uh, or going along with the popular opinion or the status quo, there's not really much adversarial things to write about. And so a dissenting opinion is something that can be more controversial, particularly if you have seen the good reviews and you as, as someone that's a potential a purchaser of a, um, you know, a piece of equipment, you're looking for the negative parts of that. And so you're more likely to click on something that says that someone had a bad experience. Uh, just like when you're looking at reviews and you see, you know, all of the flowing uh, good reviews may not be as much as information dense for you. So a lot of people tend to, you know, really focus on the negative. So detracting uh, reviews definitely have a way for people to to make a niche uh, in their environment. Uh, Jeffrey, more to add? Yeah, there's there's one other thing. There's a difference between a review and an unboxing setup. And I'll tell you right now, especially being an Amazon influencer, uh, what you, 
if if you can't really get behind to the point that you can make a review out of something, then an unboxing setup will most likely be what your video is going to be. And that's, once again, just the facts. Uh, this is what it does, and I'm setting it up, and that's what it's doing. So that's where we're going to leave it. Deep dives will happen later, and, and closer reviews will happen later from there. So just make sure that that's what you're looking for. If you're really looking for those deep dives, then go for those people and support those channels with only a few clicks. If they're truly making content that actually, you know, if they're finding the problems that are important to you. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Dave Troutman here on the panel and Edmonton, Canada. This might be a silly question, but is there such a thing as a RAID configuration for SSDs? Yeah, Jesse. Now, if you're talking about these, like uh, the T5s or T7 Samsung style drives, uh, I probably wouldn't try it. But if you wanted to get experimental, there are plenty of these kind of internal SSD drives that you could drop into like a RAID bay. It's the same the same connector here as your larger drives. There's just a, a little bit missing because those larger drives do need uh, power. Power feeds don't need that extra power to run. Uh, go for it. I wouldn't do it. I've I've become very comfortable in like the the kind of chronosync express build the drive the way you want it and then have a piece of software do an automatic backup and then keep those two backups uh safe and secure i've moved away from raid because of the risk attached to it if something goes wrong on one drive that problem could uh play out across multiple drives and um third-party software to backup has has helped me uh, avoid that risk go ahead dave well, thanks for that, because I I wondered if catastrophic failure is, is fading away. We had raids because we often had catastrophic drive failures. And also, of course, you know, third-order backups and something in a vault downtown. But I just wondered if, if SSD configurations don't allow for splitting up the memory and making a raid out of it. So your suggestion of having multiple drives and then having a raid box uh, makes complete sense for that catastrophic issue yeah jesse and uh, catastrophic disasters will never go out of fashion that's right it's been said that uh, there's two states of a hard drive dead and dying um now there is um sort of a scheme when you're looking at ssds um where uh, there's a trade-off between how many bits that they save per cell. So your MLC type uh, flash drives, they'll do uh, multiple level, um, used to be a TLC triple level uh, cell where they'll, they'll store a different number of bytes per cell. Um, the trade-off was you could get more capacity out of them with the trade-off of having to rewrite the entire cell every time. So there was a uh, functional uh, hit. So the way that um, companies have... Um, mitigated this is that they've used SLC, which is single uh, level cell, single uh, level cell um, cells that write just once per cell, which is obviously very expensive uh, since they're only being able to store one bit per cell, but it's very fast. And so what they'll do is have internal systems that'll actually um, cache uh, the writes and reads. And that's why whenever you overrun the buffer of your um, SSD drive, things start to slow down because you've run out of that fast SLC cache and now they've uh, only have to read and write off the MLC cache. 
um, which they have its own little internal processes to while you're not using the drive to actually free up that cache and, and move it around. So that also means that there's only a certain functional amount of your drive that you should use with them. But uh, having said that, there really isn't anything preventing you from using um, hardware level um, RAID configurations. Although it does seem that the hardware RAID has fallen out of fashion as of late. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. Can those cache concerns also affect uh, spinning disk drives? Because I got a couple of drives at uh, Costco. And once we got past transferring like one terabyte, if we were doing a four terabyte, 15 terabyte, uh, not 15, four or five terabyte transfer, uh, it would get catastrophically slow, like go from an hour remaining to 27 hours remaining or something. Yeah, I believe that those uh, spinning drives use a different type of caching system. Uh, they, of course, they don't use the same um, you know, storage level, but it might have been, um, I'm not 100% certain, it might have been more of a RAM-based uh, caching system, so much less uh, capacity, but um, don't quote me on that. Go ahead, Dave. Maybe it's a heat issue because um, I was very surprised with SSDs that I was using. I was archiving stuff because I was closing up my company and I wanted to pull everything off my main drives and archive it onto disks and other media. And I found that transferring many terabytes uh, overheated the drive and it got very slow. And then when I put some cooling on the drive, hand cooling and uh, cold cloth kind of stuff, uh, it got faster again. And maybe the same is true for disks because the buffer is a chip. And maybe if it overheats inside the system and can't the fans can't cool it off fast enough, then it's going to slow down after a terabyte. Yeah, yeah all those external factors do apply uh, as far as that's concerned. And um, yeah, I did take a peek at that. And as far as the spinning drives, yeah, there is a, a spec onto it as to how much buffer that they have. So yeah, um, there was actually, I don't know if it really um, went out into fashion, but for a while there were hybrid systems that you could actually use an SSD for the cache of a spinning drive. They'd have the hybrids and they were offering those. Some of them were uh, devices where they just simply paired an SSD with your um, your spinning drive, so you could get the capacity of the spinning drive, but the fast access of the of the SSDs. Some of them actually had them built in, to where they would actually have a, a smart system, and some of those smart caching systems were uh, have real complex uh, computing systems where they actually try to figure out because of your behavior, which type of things you were more likely to access and load those in the cache for extras. Um, I have not really seen the hybrid systems uh, take off as much, though. Go ahead, Dave. Well, yeah, just to add on that it was, uh, I think the iMac Pro when it first came out had that hybrid drive. And people were very excited about it because they thought it would speed up the process, but in practical use, it didn't do so well. So, yeah, it didn't catch on. Apple's dropped theirs, and if there's any others out there, uh, I'm not seeing them. Yeah, for a while, um, Intel had a a, um, a product they called Optane, which is a, a special uh, sort of uh, very fast storage, and um, it wasn't meant to be your primary storage uh, volume, but what it was meant to do is to be installed with a secondary storage cache, and then the Optane would you know, be this type of fast 
um, fast caching service to be able to speed up your acceleration. Um, they pulled the plug on that. <laughs> so I don't know if it was because of the market concerns or whether the practicality of using that. Um, when you start getting into uh, your modern SSDs, almost all of them use some type of scheme, some type of schema for being able to use cached systems and trying to figure out what data you're going to be used. Um, actually, this goes all the way down the the CPU processing line from the way that uh, modern microprocessors do. Um, a lot of what they've been able to do as far as um, compensating for Moore's law is prediction chains and trying to figure out just what is the, the most relevant uh, data and having that cached and ready to be able to accelerate processes. But it's always pretty much been um, you know, speed versus volume and storage and things too, because those caches, even especially those... Um, you know, high-level caches even on the processors. There's only so much space that you can you can uh, designate for them to have that cache. So they're getting smarter about how they use that. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Andre Dole, who is from Berlin and is asking for recommendations for a small production-ready router. It doesn't have to cost an Alex. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So the one thing that people don't realize is that the router is. Just all it, all the router is needed for is to send the uh, send it in uh, an IP address. So when I'm on any type of remote tra travel, I use the GLI net. This is the Slate Seven. I would get the if if I was purchasing nowadays, they have a Wi-Fi six model on this. Uh, and if you're if you're just assigning IP addresses, this is perfect. And then focus on a switch that will allow you to uh, pass through data uh, maybe because I can do this. These are one gig ports, but I can then get a switch that does 2.5 gig and then pass data through from computer to computer without a problem. The only other thing, a uh, couple other features with this one is it does have VPN. It can connect up to like a hotel Wi-Fi. In fact, whenever I go on travel, I use this Wi-Fi, this uh, system. You just have to set it up. So if there's any uh, if there's any panels where you have to log in, it will pass it through to your computer, so you can uh, so you can log in, and then uh, and then it just thinks that this is one device, and you could have several behind it. Uh, so that's what I would use on that, and focus more on the switches for the power. Yeah, well, we'll put um, it, it basically the. Um... Uh, well, we do have a comment from our chat. Mickey mentions that the NetGate gateways and routers are affordable and very capable. So without having given the specific, specific uh, specifications of um, what your particular uh, production router is using, um, you know, looking for something that just moves data is uh, basically a uh, application agnostic <laughs> Uh, procedure. I know that uh, one thing that um, was very popular for people in the AV industry was the Netgear AV line, the uh, the M4250, based on its um, consumer-friendly uh, services of being able to configure automatically configure NDI uh, configurations and having specific audio-video channeling. So you might um, look at whether that's an investment that helps you to, you know. Uh, helps you to do things specifically if those, if those uh, capabilities, especially NDI, is something that you use on a regular basis. All right, let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. 
A friend's USB audio interface just started acting up. She has an SM7B. What's the panel's current sub-350 USB interface for that mic for Zoom and podcasting? All right. Well, this is where our panelists like to weigh in on audio interfaces. Let's start out with John. So according to Sure's site, website, the gain requirement is minimum 60, but better if you have 70. And it says specifically on this post, there is a superb USB mic preamp with sufficient gain. Sound device is US Pre 2. <laughs> it's a little bit more expensive than your budget, but that thing has 70 dB of gain and it does a good job. Don't buy a Focusrite because it does not have enough gain to drive that mic. <laughs> good, Jeffrey. Yeah, and we don't know what uh, interface you have right now or your friend has right now, but the first thing I would do is change out all the cables and make sure that that's not the problem that you're running into and you might save yourself a, a few dollars. Harshi? So I was just on uh, Sweetwater's website yesterday and the Vocaster offers 70 dB of gain. So uh, the price has dropped. I believe it was about 150 and uh, they had the bundle for about 278 or something like that. So uh, it does offer you the 70 decibels of gain. Um, we've also spoke about the Lewitt on uh, Wednesday before the Lewitt's Connect 6 that offers about uh, 70 decibels of gain. So if you're looking about that price range, those two interfaces do offer you 70 decibels of gain. Fantastic. Appreciate um, the panelist recommendations. Also from our chat, um, Mickey weighs in SSL2 or Universal Audio Volt 476. Uh, he recommends to be able to power that SM7B. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. What plugins would you suggest for mixing electronic music using Ambisonics? All right. Well, no one has weighed in yet. Oh, Jeffrey, would you like to take a stab at it? Um, well, yeah, I did when I was I was uh, when I was at uh, Nam. I did see a few different pro. Uh, plugins that would do, uh, but I wasn't focused on Ambisonics. I know Sony has something because they now have these uh, new MX ones that are supposed to be superior in uh, in uh, surround sound. So they do have a few different. Uh, uh, I don't know if they're plugins or apps. I'm assuming they're apps that that uh, have DAW plugins attached to them. Uh, and uh, yeah, MV one. I'm sorry got that mixed up but the whole point is that uh you can check that that software out other than that uh yeah i can't think of anything offhand all right and um we've had some, we've had our um chat experts weigh in as well uh douglas so um the suggestion is that the complete deer vr suite would be the table stakes for mixing ambisonics so that might be something to look into to get you started all right, let's go to our next question. Our next question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Which teleprompter app for the Mac app Mac do you recommend? Ideally, one available from the Mac App Store. Go ahead, Dave. Well, checking the Mac App Store just now, there are about 40 to choose from, and there's probably more on the list if you filter for cheaper or free. Um, I uh, actually prefer the Teleprompter Premium Plus. It's a paid teleprompter. I found their support is terrific, and they also have iPad versions so that you're not locked into your, your Mac. Uh, I don't use a teleprompter myself regularly. 
uh, as I don't do presentations mostly. But when I need a client to read a teleprompter, uh, that's the one I've been using lately. Jesse. Uh, we use Teleprompter Premium Plus. That was exactly what I was going to recommend. Um, it looks like this on the App Store, and it is uh, cross-compatible with iPad and iPhone, and you can control. So if you have the teleprompter on your iPad at the camera, you can use your iPhone to actually control the text to scroll it up and down. There's a little bit of latency there, and sometimes it gets a bit finicky, but in general it works. And um, it does cost money. How much? I can't tell you. Teleprompter is 20. Teleprompter premium is 30. Teleprompter is 4. Teleprompter is 8. And teleprompter premium is also 60. So uh, I think you have to download it to figure out what the difference between those different price tiers could be. Absolutely. Do you, and do you know if those um, have any automated features as far as being able to read your scripts and auto advance the prompt? If they have them, we haven't used them. We do it all manually. Um, we, we set a uh, scroll speed that is appropriate for the reader, and then we fine-tune it using the iPhone as a remote control. We haven't tried any of those, uh, the voice recognition functions. If they have them, I don't know. Copy that. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, they don't have a recognition function, but I've never actually wanted that. So I was echoing Jesse there, yes. We usually control the, the pace of the show ourselves rather than trying to coach a presenter to think about scrolling and reading at the same time. It's very complicated. Okay, sounds good. All right, and uh, just a reminder, uh, we are have the last portion of our show, uh, so there's still time to put in your questions. Keep in mind, too, we do have some of our education experts here to do. So any um, general education questions are, are something that uh, we have a panel uniquely suited on Saturday to answer for. We will be going just shortly into our dedicated uh, education topic um, later on with Dave. But uh, in the meantime, go ahead and vote up or down those questions uh, to determine uh, which ones we finish out with for the rest of this hour. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Andre Dole in Berlin. Thoughts about Zoom's new production studio? John? A couple of us were on the Zoom Test Kitchen yesterday where we had the Zoom boys on there, Andy, Sam, and Jonathan, um, going over production studio. It's a great product. I just wish they would make it available outside of event. It's part of the event package only, and it's not available anywhere else except for the event um, product line, which is not my favorite. Um, Last time I checked, I need to reevaluate the event product line, but um, it's only it's first of all, it's only in beta right now. It's not general release and it's only available in the event platform. Indeed, I can plus one that one. Plus, it's um, Zoom events webinars uh, for its currently beta process. Um, plus one on that for for John's availability. Uh, Go, Jeffrey. And the other thing is, it's very basic. Uh, if you're if you're trying to produce a bigger show, uh, something like this, probably it, would, it might be something to use in the back end. But then you'd still use something like a vMix to really uh, put in all the graphics, put in all the uh, bells and whistles. Yeah, I, I agree with what's said. It is something very basic. Uh, one of the things that um, you would kind of have table stakes as far as a custom production. Um, what uh, what some call the produced panel 
uh, model is animated lower thirds. Um, they do have a custom uh, sort of name uh, scheme that they have as far as their, their labeling service, so not true lower thirds uh, in the produced panel. Um, but I will say that um, <laughs> the one thing that you can do with the production studio is produce a meeting inside of a meeting. Uh, and again, on the test kitchen, I would highly recommend checking out the the YouTube feed on that for the Zoom test kitchen where um, Andy and Sam and Jonathan were there presenting, gave a, a fantastic um, introduction about just where they're going. And um, keeping in mind too, it is a, a beta product. Um, some very impressive features. It's the only way currently that you can produce a meeting inside of a meeting, meaning that um, all of your produced panel, it requires you sending your, you know, you having your acquisition meeting and then being able to send your production meeting somewhere else because of the audio um, processing that's done. Um, you can never have that program feed in the same meeting that you, uh, you're producing. So your acquisition meeting and your production meeting can't be the same meeting with any technology just because of physics. So what they're opening up is an ability, although it is um, somewhat basic, uh, I'll say as far as maybe what we're accustomed to for something in like a vMix, Wirecast, or Ecamm, or uh, Setup, um, it is something that you can do with the participants right there in the meeting and then put up your two up, three up, all the way up to a nine up um, uh, uh, participants as well, as well as have um, ways of having a uh, share as well as participants side by side. Uh, you can create your um, super sources, if you will, the composite scenes ahead of time, have those available. In fact, you have to, um, although that um, it was mentioned, there's a ways around, uh, you know, just having some of those to hand. They also have a really interesting feature where if you set up, say, a three up for the production and say that you only place one person in a three up production, you get a one up. Or if there's only two people in a three up production, you get the two up. And if someone drops out of the call uh, or drops off or you remove them, it'll automatically switch back. It'll default back to it. Um, we had a, a really good um, demonstration of that that was shown, and some of Zoom's uh, partners were instrumental in making some of that functionality. You may uh, recognize some of that functionality with some of their Zoom uh, partners with like uh, MixEffect that they've been able to uh, to do some of the same uh, writers there. Some people that are friends of the community have contributed on it. So it looked really impressive, um, was limited somewhat in the graphics capabilities, I would say, from a typical produced uh, medium, but really, really impressive and something that um, you can do right there in that meeting and make a produced meeting. Um, one of the questions that, uh, that I had submitted uh, for the test kitchen is, can we still access the the ISO feeds? And you can. So it's it's kind of a way of having your cake and eating it to where you can have something that is produced um, and have that uh, already produced medium um, right there in, you know, you don't have to uh, ship the production, ship, uh, ship the um, program, sorry, out to a different thing. But you could also do some ISO records and do some channels or send it to another production too. So um, it is, uh, is, is a bit enticing. It may, uh, it may overcome some of the, uh, the inhibitions 
towards the Zoom events platform just to be able to use this platform. So it might be something that's a, a value proposition for Zoom. I was I was pretty impressed, uh, you know, taking the the caveats in place. But uh, let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhoots in Austin, Texas. On the Epifan show, Dan Wallace was using a curved Samsung G9 Neo 32 by 9 aspect ratio monitor with three windows side by side. Compare for productivity to the LG 43 inch quad monitor with four screens. Go ahead, John. Well, being 32 by 9, it seems like it's two monitors side by side. So the LG is probably twice as productive in one sense. But the question is, how do you like your information laid out? I'm looking at dashboards and data all day long. And so what I like to have personally is all my dashboards on the left side of my screen where I'm not working and then everything I'm working on on the right side of my screen. So for me, a widescreen monitor would be more effective than a rectangular squarish monitor. Jeffrey? Yeah, I'm, I'm big on uh, widescreens rather than curved monitors when it comes to doing any production, especially because I can have multiples and different brands. So I can, if, if I'm checking on somebody's look, I can move them over from this monitor to this monitor and see if I see the same problems there. Between the two monitors, the uh, they're both HDR10. Uh, the LG is OLED, uh, whereas the Samsung, I, do, I don't believe it is. And then the resolution of the Samsung is 5120 by 1440, whereas the LG is 3440 by 1440. So if you need a little bit more uh, with uh, real estate, then uh, the Samsung is probably where you want to go. Yeah, I, I have to say, I looked at um, widescreen monitors for my production, and I kept missing the vertical aspect of it. So typically for a premium, and especially if you're adding curved into it, I always went from 16 nines and just with the extra money had larger screens, uh, which gave me the vertical that I tend to miss. But, you know, it, you don't want to have seams in between two monitors stuck together, then this might be a way to go for you. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on the Golden Age Pre-73 Mark III preamp Neva clone? <laughs> Yeah, I believe it's a familiar question we may have had before. Um, has anyone had a chance to look at that? I don't think we have. Uh, apologies, Andy. Maybe try try adding it again. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Have any panelists played with writing-specific AI apps to write scripts for training or other nonfiction scripts? PseudoWrite has some really interesting tools for fiction writers. Go ahead, John. Yes, I use ChatGPT when I'm writing new scripts for training materials. And the reason why I use it is there are a few mega prompts that I can use that help me really narrow my focus down. And it saves quite a bit of time to be doing it through the ChatGPT than trying to just come up with it all on my own. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Can you recommend a good source for Sony picture profile recipes to make film stock looks? Thanks. Go ahead, Dave. I, I presume you're talking about post-production because I, I don't have any experience with profiles within cameras or in recordings. But in post-production, there's quite a lot of people who offer profiles that make it look like a film from the 30s or a film from the 60s or a VHS. And anything you want to do post-production-wise, there's plenty of plugins to, to look at. And many of the uh, editing uh, systems that are around right now begin there. They have some 
filters already that come with the software that allow you to make those kind of adjustments and, and put those looks on things. I don't know about whether it changes profiles. So profile recipes, a little out of my league. Maybe Jesse has some ideas. Go, Jesse. Now, what I'm about to recommend is not um, like a LUT or a profile you can load into your camera, but we just spent the last two months uh, pulling apart every bit of meat and sinew in a piece in a plugin called Dehancer. And um, we we produced a video related to this and I'll leave it in the, the chat area. Um, but there's a lot more going on than just a lookup table when you want your footage to look like film. There's um, ways that film is damaged and the, the, the information becomes corroded by the nature of film, by the grain and by the different layers of emulsion. Um, and if you want your footage to really kind of have that film feel, it goes a lot deeper than a lot. And I would, uh, <laughs> not to recommend me, but I would recommend watching this 40 minute video we did of what Dehancer does to your footage and um, how, how it differs from any kind of LUT or any kind of uh, grain plugin that you might find natively in your editing software. Uh, we did our review on Dehancer. I don't know what platform you're on, but it's a pretty good cross platform. I, I would check that out and I would just uh, uh, jump into the deep end of the pool and try to learn as much about how, what makes film so filmy. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I will say that um, the Sony cameras after the A7S III and above have a particular set of uh, profiles. And um, while they're, I'll agree with uh, Jesse, is not as extensive or controlling, it is something through a workflow of just adding the profile where a lot of people like to do quick up. What I would suggest is um, there is a creator um, who is Matt Johnson, who does a lot of wedding photography, and he has a few um, videos specifically on the profiles that he likes to use for you know run and gun style uh, editing. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. When purchasing enterprise fiber optic internet access delivered over Metro Ethernet, do most providers make you sign a, a multi-year contract? Well, Douglas, I have not had the opportunity to uh, to join the multi-year contract. Maybe John has had experience. Yeah, this is for commercial. For the for residential, it's different because they 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 have a large investment into neighborhood, and then they amortize the cost of that into the households. But for for businesses, my last company, they had to bring the fiber from the street into my office which cost them a lot of money to pull that in there. And so I had to sign a three-year contract on that fiber to get into the office. Makes sense. Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. Has Bing Chat AI lured you away from Chrome, Firefox, etc., to Microsoft Edge? They seem to be doubling down on a lot of new features. John? Woodgreen is texting me on the other line. Um, you know what? I, I have, I'm mostly on, on Apple and I have a PC next to me, but when I try to use the open AI product on Bing, it's just convoluted and a mess. And so I like to use open AI, the clean AI, and I have the plus version. It's super clean. All those same features are available, uh, to me in, in open AI outside of the regular search engine stuff. But I think that their implementation of, of Bing inside of Bing is is just a mess. That's the way I look at it. John? 
Yeah, it is a little bit of a mess, especially that when I open Microsoft Edge, it doesn't take me straight to Bing.com as my landing page. It takes me to some other Microsoft homepage. I also can't even, on my work computer, I try to pin it to my taskbar, which I do with every other app I use every day, and I can't get Microsoft's own web browser to pin to my own taskbar. So I have it open most days side by side, but my main browser is still Chrome. And Jeffrey? Yeah, I... The same thing here. It's 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 a nice start, and I have a feeling in the next couple of years it's going to get developed into something that can be really usable. Uh, but if I'm doing anything AI, I'm going to the native apps to uh, to do what I need to do and uh, and go from there. Yeah, I will say that there is one. Um, I have used it since I don't subscribe to GPT four. It is my GPT four gateway uh, for Edge. And I agree with the clunkiness of it. It's about as clunky as the name Bing itself. Um, there is one advantage of, uh, of using it in the browser, and that is that um, you can get around the input text limit by having it, for example, summarize a web page that you have. Um, you can just have the tools on Bing go ahead and summarize that web page that you're on. So it, it, that is a big lure for me to open a lengthy article and have ChatGPT summarize it, so that's a helpful feature. But uh, yeah, um, if I were a paying customer, I might think twice before I uh, before I uh, you know uh, succumbed <laughs> to, to that uh, particular workflow. All right. Well, we appreciate all of the producers' questions for our first hour, but don't go anywhere. We're going to go right into our second hour discussion of our education hour. Uh, before we do, we'd like to uh, just uh, let everyone know that our announcement that our uh, lineup for next week is in, and we have an exciting lineup uh, for you next week. Monday, we have Michael Krasny on skillful interviewing, so we don't want to miss that on our business day. Our graphics day, we'll be looking at our HDR progress here on the show. Also on Wednesday, Audio Wednesday, Cheryl Ottenrenner returns. We're looking forward to her uh, immersive sound demonstrations. And we'll look back at the technical aspects of what we did at NAB. Also Friday, we have uh, a few professionals from our uh, from our community to be able to do an audio and video over the network summary. So bring your questions, your networking production questions for that. And of course, next week uh, for our education hour, we'll be doing effective assessments. Also, one other thing we want to keep in mind is our monthly volunteer orientation meeting will be held after uh, one hour after the end of the show. So if you're interested in volunteering to produce a show, or if you're not, even if you're not available during the show hours, how you might be able to assist in office hours, join us. Uh, you can get the details in the email. We'll have an after hours presentation with Alex. With that, we'll turn things over to Dave. Dave, what do we have for education? Thank you, Josh. Welcome to Education Hour. Uh, if you have questions after you hear some of the opening stuff and some of our panelists have a discussion about it, put them into the questions and uh, vote them up and down and we'll talk to you about them as they appear. And uh, today's subject is subject matter experts, uh, often known as SMEs or SMEs, uh, when you get real comfortable with them. Uh, subject matter experts are people who are experts in their field. Uh, 
And office hours is wall to wall with SMEs as they have decades of experience and deep knowledge around one, two, or maybe three things. Around here, that's very helpful because many of them can easily explain somewhat complex aspects of um, presentation, production, lighting, sound, and networking. So others will have little or no experience, uh, can just get a handle on what might be involved. I've spent most of my career uh, making instructional video, as well as teaching people who want to produce video for the arts or ethnic um, groups, uh, institutions, and for corporate clients who want to do it themselves. I took a few moments when this subject came up to recall many of the experts I've dealt with. And if you'll indulge me, uh, I'll read a list of a whole bunch of them to illustrate how wide the range of expertise was for me. After which I'll outline some of the ways I learned to work with them and handle their needs. At the end, I hope to provide you with four main qualities a person should have, which should help you if you ever have a situation involving a production uh, which involves teaching and teaching materials for a specific skill or knowledge transfer situation. So here goes. Geophysicist, lumberjacks, five of them, mechanical engineer, military pilots, three of them, world's top soil scientist, taxi drivers, three of them, software designer, demolition expert, historians, two of them as a pair, chief magistrate, two union leaders, FASD researcher, FASD being fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, city clerk for my own city, 12 professors, in all different ranges from early education, mid-education, and psychology, research psychologists, pharmacists, five of those, university president, geologist, historian, different historian from the other two, GBIS technician, that's geographical based information systems. It's a complex database of uh, geographical information and it was for the city of Edmonton. Brain surgeon, that was a fun one. EEG researcher, which blew my mind. Film sensor, to explain film censorship. Production managers, four of those. Oil field drill boss, which was fun because I got to go on a rig. Refinery engineer, which meant I got to go into dangerous places in a refinery. That was great. And I also got to go to a uranium uh, mine uh, and learn how uranium is done. And that was a process engineer who got me into there. I've had two general contractors deal with me for um, time-lapse photography of their projects when they're building a building and that, how to do that. Uh, forward stewardship, stewardship specialist. Uh, these are the guys who monitor the harvesting of uh, wood and pulp and all the rest of that. Three instructional designers, and I'll say just side with nobody listening, uh, they were the most difficult to deal with. And a smoke jumper, which is a guy who lands behind a fire and tries to fight it from the other side. So uh, some of the things that I developed as skills working with these people over the last 30 or 35 years uh, was to go into a first meeting ready with questions on what you need to accomplish so you can do the project. These are questions outside of the subject matter that they're an expert in. And they're also probably outside of the production details. You want to stick with what we're going to have to gather together or what we're going to have to brainstorm 
to get to the matter and then bring their extra expertise on board when developing those things. Listen to everything they tell you. Sometimes, and you see this in TV shows, people are listening to everything the guy said and there was a clue in the way he said something. Sometimes they're telling you things without even realizing that that's helpful. Uh, they think they're just trying to educate you about their subject. Well, actually, they're telling you a lot of different things when they're telling you about their subject because they'll have to use metaphors. They'll have to use uh, illustrations and, and suggest things that I might be familiar with and how they're parable with this kind of concept that we're dealing with. Uh, document every interaction. And that was key for me. I didn't do it at first. And then I would lose track of whether or not I'd learned something in casual conversation or it was something we needed to include in the project. So all my calls, meetings, email, and calendar stuff was documented detailed so that when I had to go back and find out how far along we were in the process, I could bring comfort to the SME that yes, we've covered that. We had it at this meeting three weeks ago. We don't have to reiterate that. We're all clear on that. And it's in the script where it belongs. So being able to be that way calms down the SMEs. They, they have to learn to trust you. They have to learn to have confidence that you're listening to them and understanding them, but also you're helping them in their project because they're probably not project managers in your sense. They're project managers in their area. You have to bring, of course, your producer expertise to the project, but you have to let them lead on the content. Uh, that was clear from the beginning with me uh, when I first worked with people who didn't know how to work television, didn't know how to use a camera, that sort of stuff. And I was having to show them these things. I just let them lead on what it is they wanted to know about a camera. And then it also allowed me opportunities to bring in other elements of how you operate a camera that makes you look better and operate better such as, I don't know, move the camera, don't zoom. Anyway, so I also, with SMEs, help them separate the content of their presentation or their idea or the project we're working on from the production of the video. I try to shield them as much as possible from what the details are of the production or how we accomplish certain things. I simply say, yes, we can do that. Or, well, that's going to require two or three illustrations. Can you provide me with some more? Can we work together to make them? And I don't need to talk about how I'm going to do the video, ever. I need to talk to them about what they can bring to the video that we can include. I iterate constantly regarding the script and illustrations. A first illustration often is a pretty dense image. And then I iterate with them to simplify, 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 or separate into sections, this phase first, this phase second, and then the complications occur later and we have context to understand them with. And when I did that sort of stuff, I was actually helping them understand how to, how to improve the way they tell people things. So the iterating of the script was to simply make it more cogent and less boring, less wordy, make it a little quicker to get to the subject matter. All the things you've been hearing about making better YouTube videos was part of what I was doing with SMEs is to make them better presenters too. I found it helpful to offer metaphors that came to mind during meetings or in planning discussions with a group. Um, I would hear them talk about something and then a metaphor would occur to me and I'd wait for a moment to offer that. And then it might actually help them identify a key concept that is easy for them to understand. But for me, it was a hinge point. 
and I needed to have that expanded for me in the meeting, which then later led to a subject that was delved in more deeply in the in the script. And I also found it helpful when meeting in their environment to just observe it, just look around their office, look around their workspace, or if they're professors, you know, how, how they manage their, their information and where you fit in their day. Because I learned a lot from those environments, which I could then bring into the conversation. Uh, particularly, I had one with a, a brain surgeon and, uh, I found observing his environment gave me ways. He had illustrations of his stuff all over the room, and they're just background stuff to him. And whenever he went into some sort of detail on it, I'd say, well, you've got that model that comes apart over here on your counter. Could we use some of that? And, the, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, i got to use the model. Right, okay. And then it would help him organize his thoughts. So over that time, I learned to use four basic things which was more about handling the SMEs than it was producing the show. Um, it helps to be a quick learner. That is, I'm a quick learner. So I can hear something a couple of times and get the grasp of it. Most people can do that. But I'm also a quiet listener. I try not to jump in or encourage them or maybe even confuse them by asking too many questions. I wait until they're comfortable with me listening and understanding, more nodding of the head, more writing things down, more documenting what they're, what they're telling me, and not trying to have a sort of planning meeting right off the top. I also learned that when working with school dramatizations, uh, actors make better teachers, uh, but teachers play parents better than actors do. Actors think they're a parent and try to act like one, but if they're not actually a parent and haven't been in a school talking to a teacher, then they often look awkward or, or say um, they're less of the passion of, of a parent, more of an actor. Whereas teachers understand that energy 100% because they're receivers of it all the time. And so I found when I had to have actors in, I gave them teaching roles and I let the teachers participate by having, and they were the subject matter experts in many cases, let them be the parents for these interactions that required parents. So that's a key for me. And you might find it if you ever have to do something in the educational field. Ah, it's a little clue for you to make things work better. I also learned and uh, used this basic thing as a key when I worked with other people on a project who had to deal with the SMEs as well as I warned them. SMEs take their jobs very seriously. That's their whole life, their career, their whole focus has been being an expert in an area. I uh, had an interaction with a captain uh, who was teaching in a pilot training program. I was a project manager for a project for NATO. And in Canada, they train NATO pilots because we're, we have these large flat areas of land where you won't run into a mountain like you would in Italy. So, uh, People from all over NATO come to Canada to learn to fly. They're not flyers to begin with, so they have to start from scratch. The training program has been running for 50 years. They asked for us to create a digital presentation and dynamic database-driven training program. And during that, we had five or six SMEs uh, come to us and deal with things like you know weather, uh, communication, navigation, these expertise. Well, we had one pilot, of course, who teaches interception. That is, fighter pilots have to intercept another 
plane. And often, for 50 years, uh, they would show the red plane on the stick, and they'd have a blue plane on a stick, and you're the blue plane, and this is how you intercept. And then they would visually demonstrate this with these two sticks. Well, he brought it with him to show our animators who were doing these animated interceptor videos uh, how he teaches it, and then they would take what he was showing and what he was teaching them and make it into animations, which we used in the project. And they're wonderful animations because I had brilliant animators. But then I casually asked the guy, so do you make the noise when you do that? You know, And he gave me a withering look that should have really just given me a heart attack right there. It was the wrong thing to say to him because he takes this stuff very seriously. It's not funny if you make the noise. Anyway, and uh, I think uh, that's enough for now. I've seen a few questions uh, come in and uh, maybe we can deal with some of those. But uh, we'll start with the panel. Uh, John, any remarks? Yeah, I think when we think about working with SMEs, the question is why? And it's probably the most important question you ask while you're working with SMEs too. And ultimately what it boils down to is you're trying to get information out of someone's head and into another person's head, typically when you're building training or educational materials. And the subject matter experts, they are so, um, they've so encoded that information that they don't think about necessarily all the steps they're taking to accomplish a goal. And so it's really important for a third party, like an instructional designer or someone building a video, to help be the liaison for the audience who will be receiving the information later. And so you should be asking your subject matter experts why. Um, if you can, you should observe them doing their job. And every time they do something that they have not explained yet, ask, why did you do that? And, and then it's your job as the designer to identify and filter out all the unnecessary stuff to get to the core, to that the, the heart at the center of the training. Because if you just sit a someone who's new and ha doesn't understand the task and your your training approach is just shadowing or just side by side, it takes significantly longer than if you can filter the most important information and scaffold it uh, logically for your learners. And just as a specific example, when I started in my uh, current role, we had one group of people who scheduled appointments for imaging exams, and we did a side-by-side -side approach. And when you just do it with just a new hire and an expert, it would take at least 90 days for the new hire to take their first phone call. And just because the, the subject matter expert, they don't understand how training works necessarily or how people build knowledge over time. And so they would just wait for the right call to come in, try to explain it, and hope the person remembered it. When you break that apart and split up the information into bite-sized chunks and structure them in a way that's logical, uh, we were able to take that training time from 90 days. Now people are taking their first phone call within one week. They don't know everything, but they're starting. And it's getting that hands-on practice in a structured format that you get by breaking things down with a subject matter expert rather than just trying to do it all on your own. Thanks, John. And Chris? That was very helpful, John, uh, and makes some of the points that I had in mind. One quality of experts is uh, called automaticity, that by uh, repeatedly doing the things at which they are expert, um, a lot of the steps involved uh, become automatic for the expert, and they're, um, they receive receive from consciousness on the part of the expert. 
So it's like Dave was saying earlier, uh, the challenge is to um, help the expert um, put him or herself in the shoes of a beginner and say, let's go back to when you were a novice in your in the field in which you've become an expert. Uh, how did you think about or uh, practice the steps that now are uh, automatic and invisible? Let's slow the process down so that your audience, your eventual audience for this video, perhaps, uh, who are novices, relatively speaking, can actually see what it took to um, practice uh, integrating a number of steps that for you have have become invisible. So, so you, in a sense, are um, doing some time traveling with the expert to to take them back to where the uh, audience, the intended audience, uh, is in terms of their expertise or novicehood and um, be able to uh, make the invisible stuff more visible to to the eventual audience. So it's a it's a tricky thing in a way. Uh, sometimes an, a real world class expert is not your best uh, model. It's it's somebody who's uh, halfway there, so to speak. Um, they're great experts at having a conversation with other experts who share the automaticity and the cutting edge focus that they're capable of. But for um, relative beginners, that's not very helpful. That's, that's not transparent. So that's, that's what I have to contribute. Thanks. Uh, that reminded me that I have a process which I used to call surfacing the details. And catching those automaton moments where the person just skipped over something because it's obvious. And I go, well, well, let's surface that. How, how did that become so easy for you to do? And you're right. The repetition then relates to being unaware that this is a step that people are going to skip over or trip on. Uh, the other thing was that um, experts often uh, assume things not in evidence, I guess is how the legal people say it. And I've had to remind them that what you're explaining to me is going to be in concrete when we're finished. That won't be changed. It won't be dynamic. It'll be fixed. And so it's very important to surface every little bit and make sure that we have it at least referred to or a way for the person to learn more about something if they can't fit it into this particular project. But yeah, those those are terrific points about the SME being very involved in what they do, very committed to it and then having to draw them back in time. I think that's a great metaphor. John? Yeah, it's also super important to make sure you're uh, talking to your experts and asking them, sorry about the dog, um, if it's a good way to do that or a bad way to do that. And what I mean by that is we grow numb to the stupid processes we have. And if you can surface that with an expert, you can stop doing things the wrong way just because that's how it's, we've always done it or that's how we've built it in the past is you should ask, why are you doing that or is there a better way? 
Okay, let's uh, try, uh, we'll hope the dog is comfortable with you uh, starting with our first question. Yeah, she had a bad dream. Uh, so, Laura Thompson from Beaumont, Texas asks, Dave, have you ever been intimidated to speak to one of your experts? Generally, I'm not, because I am fascinated by what people know. I love hearing people talk about stuff they're really into. So, uh, a soil expert, for instance, had me raptured for an hour because I knew nothing. I didn't know how soil came about, and I was just drinking it in, listening and listening and drinking it in. But there was one, uh, the magistrate. He was a chief justice uh, in the province, a revered fellow near retirement. He's going to be interviewed, and you're going to have to do it in his office, which means hauling a lot of gear into a secure area and listening to the guards and everybody else tell you where you can stand or be or how much time you're going to have in his office before this whole interview starts. Now, we hear, you know, production crews of three or so come in with a lot of gear, takes a couple of hours to get everything settled, all the lighting right, get the curtains going, and have our interviewer comfortable with the set setting and the situation. And if you have two cameras, it's really hard. Well, we did. We had two cameras, and we managed to do it all in half an hour. We had it almost all built somewhere else in the truck and then hauled it in holus bolus on carts. We got ourselves all set up, and then this man comes in in his robes, and the whole room falls silent. And it was really intimidating. <laughs> uh, what was wonderful about that was that about three sentences in, he realized what tension was in the room, because he's a judge, he reads that stuff. And he just sort of said, hold it, folks. This is a conversation. Don't treat me like a judge here. Just treat me like a guy who knows what he's talking about. And everybody started to relax, and they started to hear him tell stories. And then we got to the subject matter. The interview started, and we got what we came for. But he was a consultant on a project that went for, I think, for six months. And every time we had interactions with him, the person I was dealing with was indirectly involved, but they were going to be called the producer of the whole thing. And he was more intimidated because he had been a lawyer and knew how you address a judge and how you have to defer to them all the time. And he had a heck of a time doing the interviews because he deferred to this fellow all the time. He had to actually learn to just read the card, just say the question. He could not could not say the question after reading it because there's a judge he's dealt with sitting across the way. So he was more intimidated than me after that start, but we were all intimidated by this fellow as he came into his own office. Next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Do you ever have to tell us me to simplify their explanations for the target audience? That's a common thing. The simplify, simplify, revision, iteration, your illustration's great, but we're going to have to just break it into three or four parts because there's too much data and it will just, nobody will know where to look. Uh, I had a guy doing animations of physics and he, a professor, and he understood physics totally. And he understood his dynamic, uh, fluid dynamics that he was trying to explain. It took me a month to get him to slow down, stop and explain what that detail was, what this detail was. What are millibars? I mean, really break it all down to its essential sand and then assemble it back into the concrete that it's going to be. So all the time, simplifying is not something SMEs are comfortable with. 
I think in some cases, SMEs who worked with me or worked with other people I've worked with in groups came away maybe even a better teacher, having dealt with us who wanted to learn this to be able to make the materials. And then maybe they took what we talked to them about simplification and made it better for the students in the, in the follow-up. John? Yeah, when I'm speaking with this me, I try to own the ignorance. And what I mean by that is I don't ask them to change their explanation for the other person or the, the trainee. I ask them to explain it to me. So even if I understand it fully myself, I will ask what might be considered elementary or silly questions just because I want to help them think through it. But I don't want them to think poorly of the new hire or the person they're training. And, and one specific example is I was in a uh, meeting yesterday with some subject matter experts and we're building a, some training about a certain group of insurance plans that my company has. And insurance plans for, um, or when we're taking calls from our members, we answer questions a certain way. And if we have providers calling us about a claim issue or a question about payment, it's a different phone line and we answer them a different way and, and there's different kinds of documents we need to reference. And the subject matter expert kept talking about how important it was that we distinguish the right language when you're caught talking on the provider plan versus the dental plan and, and how important it was and how important it was. And no one was asking why. So I just asked, like, why is it important? Is it something that our learners need to be able to do because the providers expect them to say different words? Or is it because they won't be able to find what they need if they use the wrong words? And specifically, I remember the question was, if it's a medical plan with a doctor, we use the phrase maximum out of pocket or the MOOP. But when you're talking about a dental plan for your teeth, it's the out of pocket maximum. And it was super important to my subject matter expert to delineate those two things. And I don't know why, and I don't particularly care why. So I just asked her, I said, what happens if we say the wrong thing? And she said, well, you won't be able to find it in the plan documents. And so the, in this case, the answer was, we need to use precise language so that our uh, our agents know which what to search for when they're doing a control F. And so the solution is to have a little bit of a vocabulary activity at the beginning, because these people all know the medical insurance terms already. We need to line up the dental insurance terms side by side and see how they're similar and how they're different and why it's important. And so that's a, a whole step in the training program that we didn't have before. And no one told us before that it was important. And so we didn't have it in the training plan prior to this week. I've been a victim of that where I used the wrong term and sent a person into a completely different area. This is a support person and realized my mistake about halfway in. I realized, wow, they're going way off the right track. And I realized I had phrased it wrong and I should correct myself. Chris. Language is important and, uh, experts have developed, uh, their own languages, uh, primarily to uh, communicate effectively with other experts, the people they're working with day to day. And often that language uh, involves acronyms and, and only the commu expert community is fluent in those acronyms. So I think a lot of times what the, the way you can help an expert um, make his or her um, monologue accessible to non-experts is by spelling out the acronyms. Don't use abbreviations that, that your audience isn't likely to be fluent in. Um, take the time to 
say the full name of the the organization or the process that you have abbreviated for efficiency in your expertise in your expert conversations and and spell it out it's it slows things down but it uh, doesn't turn off the audience who otherwise would say oh well these people are speaking in tongues uh, I can't follow it. I'm going to shut down my uh, curiosity and my uh, receptiveness to what they're saying because I don't understand that language. I've seen I'm some really of that. Glad you, I'm glad seen you some of that in office up. hours myself as a non-expert in the technology side. Um, I remember early on uh, participating in some of the uh, during the week sessions as a producer, as an audience member, and shaking my head saying, these, these people are wonderful, but I have no idea what they're referring to. Um, so uh, I've, I've come along a little bit in that department, but uh, I think I've noticed that's a quality of experts that they speak in acronyms pretty densely, and that's not very accessible to non-experts. It wasn't until I was dealing with Defense Department people that I learned the TLAs are their language, and it was really impenetrable. Now, fortunately, I had a fellow on my crew who was former military, and uh, he could just turn to me and say, he means this, and then I'd get it. But the SMEs, we had to make them stop using the TLAs, uh, three-letter acronyms, uh, in order for our our operators and our coders and the graphics guys to figure out what it is they're illustrating and, and not get it wrong or use the wrong three-letter acronym. Uh, I also had uh, a situation um, expressed to me that a fellow came out of an Apple uh, event and they had just announced the Newton. And uh, he was all excited about this, gets into a cab in San Francisco, starts talking to the cab driver about how exciting it is, how amazing, and all the technologies. And the, and the cab driver's listening. And then just before the guy got to his destination, he says, does it have TIA, uh, LRF support? And the guy went, oh, gee, I'm going to have to look that up. Thanks for that. And then he left. And LRF stands for little rubber feet. So you can play a, a game on them sometimes. But I've had uh, conversations with city people uh, regarding the impenetrable language used by experts at the city hall. They will use uh, zoning references and letter keys and number combinations that don't mean a thing to an average citizen. And I've often called it city speak. But I also know there's community speak, that we speak a particular language, and certainly in TV production, we have a ton of acronyms, as Chris can testify, and it's incumbent upon us to recognize when an audience is not following us or glazing over and and start using the full phrase. So SMEs, yes, they, they tend to live in that world, operate in that world. And I had that occasion with the city clerk's office where we were trying to explain something to the regular public about how to present to city council. And we had to get all of the acronyms out of the out of the script. Next question. Our next question comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Do you have different formulas for dealing with experts who want to be hands-on, hands-off, or are just nervous about the production? That's an excellent question, Gordon, because it is a people handling thing. If a person has been assigned 
to a project by a superior, they want to perform the way the superior expects. And I learned to tune that in. I learned to hear him pleasing the master by being as specific or as effusive as possible to get me to understand. And then I would deal with the superior. I would say, you need to let our SME innovate a little bit or be creative a little bit and give us more to work with than just the just the facts, ma'am. So it is a, a dialogue, I guess, you have with a SME as to where they're coming from, how comfortable they are representing this information. Uh, some people didn't feel they were expert enough. And I had to convince them that, in fact, no, people have recognized you. You may not know it, but they've recognized you as the person they want to, to contribute this. Uh, SMEs don't always appear on camera. They're helpful resource people, and often we have, you know, pro professional presenters or actors take that role of the teacher. But in some cases, yes, when SMEs are asked to be on camera, you're then dealing with the two issues. They're a specialist, an expert, but they may not be a good presenter or they may sh freeze up on camera. And that is a whole thing producers deal with no matter who they are, the expert or the amateur, they have to deal with those emotions and the process of getting them to speak to a camera. I've had people who can get up in front of 20 students, give a completely clear presentation, stand up in front of one of my cameras and not get a sentence out because they're just too intimidated by the process. So we come up with ways to make it a whole lot easier for them, not just teleprompters, but a whole way of making it more of a comfortable conversation and not a presentation. Uh, I'm sure John's got some ideas too, but there is no formula for this. There's just a skill for listening to people and hearing the subtext behind how they're behaving. And then you can explore, how would you like to make us more, make you more comfortable doing this? John? Yeah, and it comes, a lot, comes down oftentimes to stating expectations in the beginning and uh, helping the person understand what you're asking them to do and what you're not asking them to do. And in my experience, the business owner, who's usually not the subject matter expert, is a lot more, um, has a desire to be more hands-on, and that's a bigger struggle typically. Usually the subject matter expert, they want to share their knowledge and they want to help, and they need guidance in how to do that. And so your job is to help ask the right questions of them. And how we frame it typically is, by the time I've brought in a subject matter expert, I know what I want to do with the training. I know the general big picture goals. And I explain to the person, here's where we want to be in, in the end. I want to spend X number of hours with you shadowing, asking questions, and it's almost always longer than they expect. So setting that expectation in the front too. And, and here's what it will look like. I'll get information from you and then I'll go and I'll take it to the kitchen and cook it up and I'll bring out the finished product and I want you to do a taste test and, and run through it and tell me where we need to edit or make changes. And, and I don't involve them typically in the build process, uh, mostly because they don't have time and they don't want to most often, but it's also helpful to uh, keep those lines straight. And if it is, you do have someone like a business owner who is very hands-on or demands to be hands-on, or, or you can tell that from the initial conversations, your scope conversations, it always helps to have a specific task you can assign them that is uh, helps them feel that ownership and is relatively low stakes to the overall project. So you can say, I really need you to focus on your task and I'll go do my tasks. And it helps just you know, 
help them feel involved. Yeah, thank you, John. Next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. In your experience, what influence have SMEs had over the production process? Have you ever had to put them in their place? I thought a bit about this question when I first saw it, and I had to see if I could recall any time that it happened. And I can only recall times when some other person in the project had to be put in their place. They seemed to think they were now an expert in the subject because they'd been exposed so much to the material. They were starting to make suggestions to the Smitty and and the producers uh, about how, you know, we could change this to that. And I'm going, okay, yeah, we'll park that suggestion. We'll take it up with the SMEs. But really, you're not a SME. So I'll take your suggestion, but I can't guarantee it's going to get into the script. And we encourage people a lot in production to point out something or to catch something that we're not paying attention to. But when it comes to dealing with the subject matter, it's pretty easy to see there's a, there's me, the crew, or me, the helper, or me, the staging guy, and I'm not part of the subject. Uh, I'm just presenting it. So for me, it's been pretty easy. I don't know what other people's experience has been. John? Yeah, and it's always helpful just to, to, to thank people and thank you for your input or thank you for that feedback. You don't have to take action on it, but you can be thankful that they were they care enough to share. We also have some room for questions. We're, we're not up to time yet, but we have a couple more questions to go. And if you've got things that are occurring to you while you hear this discussion, please bring them up and we'll, we'll take them in, in the list here and go to the next question. Our next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. What mistakes have you made with experts that could serve as a good learning moment for the rest of us? Oh, I'm going to let you start, John. I've made every mistake you can make. <laughs> um, I'd say the most common ones are asking too much or asking too little, and especially not setting the right expectations. Um, when I started in a training role, I didn't realize the impact of pulling someone out of their workflow and what it cost them. And so I wasn't always uh, gracious for their time, nor responsible with their time. And it caused me to um, burn some of my bridges. And I had to spend years to rebuild that trust. Because from their perspective, I wasted their day, didn't use the information, and um, they didn't get value out of that. And so I always tried to be mindful of I'm asking this person for their time, especially, and that's not a commodity that you should ask for lightly. I'll add to that, and it's a similar mistake. It was I improperly read my SME. I'd been working with this person for almost six months, and so I thought I had got to know them pretty good as a person, not just a SME or someone making the production. We were doing a documentary on hemophilia, and hemophilia is a complex and very difficult uh, situation for people. And there's a lot of myths that are around it. So we were making a documentary where we were trying to explode these myths, but explain exactly what's involved. And over that period of three to six months, I'd learned so much about this process. I stepped over the line and thought I knew all about this and started to suggest things to my SME about hemophilia and it was a total disaster. Now, this was early in my career, and it taught me a lot, is that I had misread this person's comfort with me. And then I went over the line, and the trust vanished, just like John said. 
this person then treated me as if I'm just an employee now. You're going to do it this way. You're going to do it. And they took over the whole role because they couldn't trust me to just leave it the way they wanted it. And that's an important lesson for everyone to learn is that you're going to be inundated with all kinds of useful material. You're going to be in the backyard barbecue talking to people about what you heard today about brain surgery. And it's very entertaining for your friends, but it's not teaching. And to assume I'm an expert after I've just sat for three months with somebody, no, that's not going to happen. The 10,000 hour rule applies in some cases, unless I put in the 10,000, I don't get any credit as a SME. So that was probably one of the best mistakes I made at that time because it made me a better listener and it kept me on that line, not stepping over it. Next question. Our next question is from Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona and here on the panel. How do you prepare yourself to get the most from interaction with an expert? John, you can start with again. Yeah, I always try to get a high-level understanding of the task and the goals of the training. Because if you don't know where you want to go, then sitting down with someone who's an expert in it doesn't necessarily help because it's very easy to get distracted, to go down side trails and not understand what is essential and what is not essential. In my case, in a call center scenario, I typically will spend an hour or two listening to those kinds of calls or um, listening to my um, customers, ideally, about their needs and what they, they want to get out of this training. And so before I go to talk with someone who actually does the work, I need to understand what's the goal of the training, what's a high level um, view of the task from start to finish. And so I generally have a, at least a, I could outline out what the main steps are before I talk to the expert and, and try to fill in all the gaps of my main points. Good points. I've been fortunate that almost every SME I've dealt with has been sent to me by the people who wanted the project done. So I get to find out about this person before I even meet them. And we have a concept from the central, the people paying the check, as to what they're looking for, what audience it's for, and why they think they need it, and why video, they think, is is the best way to do it. Um, and then I get to meet a SME. So sometimes I'm able in first meetings to ask about the subject matter and get an overview from the people at the top level before I meet the actual expert. But preparing for the expert, I, I don't think I've ever had to or needed to, because when they came to me, they knew that I was going to have to hear all about the stuff that they're going to explain. And then I was going to have to do my best to keep up with them. So they were maybe unsure about me. They had no way to research me except to know that the client wants me to do the job because, A, I might, I might do it cheapest, I might do it the best, or I might have expertise or experience in the area. I had a client in forestry who seemed dubious at first with me. And in order to get a background on how they harvest trees, we had to drive for two and a half hours up into the woods. And it was during this drive where I was in his truck and we're bouncing around in the backwoods, we got to know each other and we got to trust each other. And I worked him a little bit about what we were gonna see when we get there. How did you come to understand this? How long have you been in the business? The whole thing about who you are as a person. And then he got to trust me. So I climb out of the truck at the site and I'm in awe about what I'm seeing. It's uh, actually, for people who've never seen it, it's quite frightening what they're doing to mow down a forest. Well, 
I was able then to narrow down what it is we're going to explain and make sure I didn't make any remarks about what the moral of what this is doing to our climate or anything else, because I knew from that conversation in the truck how sensitive he was to the subject. He's a forest steward, and that's his primary goal is to make sure that they don't damage the forest. So I had that as the prepare myself because I got to interact with them before we actually got to the field where we're going to start shooting some stuff. Next question. Our next question is from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. How are TED Talks good examples of SME presentations? Start us off, Chris. Well, TED Talks. Um, if you watch a few TED Talks, I think you'll notice that certainly the, the presenters are all experts in what they're presenting. What, I, what I've noticed as well is that um, the experts have been rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed to focus on one idea of the 10,000 ideas and big ideas and concepts that are uh, the content of their expertise. So that's very hard to do off the cuff. If you ask me about uh, my experience as a submariner, for example, I was nine years in the U.S. Navy submarine service. So in this company, I'm I'm the reigning expert on submarine operations, and and yet um, the temptation is to tell you a lot about what I know. But in a TED talk, the idea is to focus on one big idea and leave room for questions, leave room for follow-up, but don't tell them everything that you know, or don't try to do that, first of all, because it's impossible and overwhelming to the audience who is not expert. And you're showing off your expertise, but you're not uh, really communicating in a, in a useful way to your audience because they're they're overwhelmed by uh, all of those details and possibilities. So uh, a TED Talk is a great example of uh, disciplined narrowing down to one important point that is uh, ideally actionable by your audience, and then stopping at the 15 minute or 17 minute mark after much rehearsal and editing and coaching um, of the experts who eventually have uh, um, put together this 17 minute uh, performance. So it's, it's quite different than um, being a professor, for example, or an instructor at the uh, submarine officer school where you you get to draw from your experience selectively and you have six months of of daily interaction with the with the candidates to uh, bring them along in uh, in their growing expertise or their growing confident novicehood um, in in this new uh, angle of the profession. Anyway, mm -hmm. TED talks are great one point at a time. 
Yeah, I, I would go with what Chris is saying to the degree to say that TED Talks are not SME presentations, but they're SMEs doing presentations. An SME is usually when engaging with constructing instructional material or setting up a training skill development program are bringing expertise so that it can be put into a different form and cover all the bases that are necessary to develop that skill or a practice. So a TED Talk is very interesting, and it does show that the person's an expert in the subject, and that's a good thing. But it's not a, a, a good example of teaching, I guess. It's, it's broadening your understanding of something, but it's, it's not going to teach you much about it. Next question. Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. asks, what are the typical sources of scope expansion when working with a SME? You can start us, John. Yep. I would say the most common is not knowing when you start the conversation where you want to go. And so it's really important to have your learning objectives in advance of that meeting with a SME. Because, again, where the expert is an expert is in understanding the content they're not an expert in communicating the content or prioritizing the content. And that's what your instructional designer or trainer is for. And, and that's where you can get into trouble is you need to know where the boundaries should be and what rabbit trails are worth going down and which ones are unnecessary because not only does your project size balloon, but it confuses your learners if you add extraneous content. And a lot of times the learner needs to understand the basics now and the expertise later. And so a lot of times your training material should be high level to start and then six months on the job or a year on the job, find some way to incorporate some of that other information. And and it's your job as the instructional designer to help the, the expert understand where those boundaries should be. I totally agree with that. It's the job of a producer to control the scope. And the only real scope creep I've seen in the educational field and in the corporate training field is after they see the first cut. And then they get belated inspiration. Oh, you know what would be good is if we could just hire a helicopter, fly it over the refinery and point things out. And I'm going, hmm, interesting. Not part of the original plan. I'd love to do that because it would be fun. Can't see how it's improving our presentation. And they're going, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe not. Uh, this sort of thing happens in every project, not just in training and video. The belated inspiration is the most dangerous thing because they're the people with the checkbook. And if they turn around and say, well, we'll pay for all that stuff. Thank you very much. We really want to put it in the show. Okay, we get to the second cut where we put in some of these things, and they suddenly realize why we were against it in the first place because now – like John has described, the presentation is starting to get a little off track or confusing or going into more detail than necessary. And it was fun to do and it was interesting to show that stuff. Um, I had one project we were showing a, a physics lab with lasers and we shouldn't have been in there that long because the fellow started showing things that had nothing to do with what we wanted, to, what was in the script or what we had planned. He just went, he just was so excited to show this off that he started showing us things. And eventually I kind of turned the camera off and put it down and I stood and watched him present. And I said, this is fascinating. Yes, but I think we have everything we need now. So we didn't let it creep. We didn't shoot it all and then try and explain why we need to take it out. We made the decision on the site, 
that the person was just overeager and overexcited. We got them to do their closing, and that was their segment. Uh, it was fascinating. I mean, I love watching people play with lasers and do fun stuff. And uh, inadvertently, even though my camera was off, while carrying it out, uh, it got blasted by a laser and I got a dot on my, on my uh, camera and had to have it fixed. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I've had people get overexcited at meetings and that's pretty easy to control. That scope is pretty easy to rein in with budget discussions or time discussions or scheduling. Uh, but yeah, this creep usually happens after they've sort of gotten carried away and we're in the middle of the process or near the end of the process. And that that's when you really got to squeeze the clamps and just clamp it all down to stay on track. Uh, next question. Our next question is from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. In the areas of arts or sports, what were the best TED or masterclass talks? Chris, start us off. Well, my favorite masterclass talks was uh, led by Steve Martin, the uh, comedian and musician. And what I loved about it was that um, Steve, and this was probably Steve's idea, um, instead of him presenting examples from his own uh, writing of uh, scripts for stand-up, um, comedy routines. He did some of that, but then he uh, introduced three novice comedians who whom he was, uh, in a sense, conducting a, a condensed seminar with them uh, for our benefit, the, us, the viewers. And uh, each of these uh, novice comedians would come with a, a handwritten bit that they had drafted. Uh, and Steve would uh, take the piece of paper, you know, old fashioned, low tech, and he would read it and then talk through it. And you, you could see uh, a version of it on the screen. And then he would talk with the author, the novice author about what what seemed to work and and what he might have changed and did you did you think about another way of saying this or uh making that sentence shorter so that you could pause and then hit them with the punchline um and it was just marvelously done uh we were kind of we the audience were uh looking over the shoulder of a master who was also a very good teacher. So he was using the material produced by the novice rather than showing off his master, his masterful final products of his own work. Uh, and it was, it was inspiring to me, frankly, it was a, a beautiful example of teaching, but also of the way the mind of, uh, in this case, a comedian or public speaker works as he thinks about the audience, thinks about himself, thinks about uh, the visual images that might come to mind if you use these kinds of words. Uh, it was just, uh, it, it caused me to subscribe to Masterclass, which I've underused. I've underused my subscription, but I was 
drawn into it by saying, wow, <clears throat> the Steve Martin piece is so good. If, if other things are this good, I'm, I'm on. John? Yeah, it's not uh, either of those two tools, but The Great Courses has a class on cooking. And my wife and I took that uh, many years ago. And it is one of the best examples of instructional design that I've ever seen. Each class is designed to be a one class where you cook a meal and you learn a main technique in French cuisine. And so um, when they teach you the chopping class, you make ratatouille because you have to chop multiple different kinds of vegetables, multiple different kinds of ways. And what the instructor is really good at, it's not super high production value. There's two cameras basically with uh, good clean lighting, but he explains what he's going to do and zooms in close on his hands and shows you what he's doing. And he gives you time to follow along. And while you're trying to do the cutting, he's explaining the principles behind why you're cutting the carrots this shape and you cut the peppers that shape. Um, and it's, it's a nice, it's slow enough pace that you can follow along and do it while he talks, unlike Food Network shows where they're trying to keep people's attention. But it's fast enough paced and at the end you actually have something that you did and you can see the results of your training right then and there. And by the end of the course, you have seven or eight meals that you can cook really easily, and you just need to know what ingredients to get. Thanks for that. And thanks to everybody else who contributed their ideas today and gave us questions to talk about. We'll be guided by uh, this sort of stuff every month. Uh, we have recently had a brainstorming session where we've got some really good new ideas coming up. We continue to work with others in getting guests and researching the tech as it relates to teaching and learning and technology for teaching and learning. We also want to acknowledge all the people who tirelessly donate their time every day to operate office hours and office after hours for all of us. John and I are always grateful for the panelists who contribute each week to the day's discussion. There are people in after hours all day and night ready to give you a quick answer most of the time to nearly any technical question you may have. So it's where the global in our community can be found. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you again next Saturday. my whispering skills. Chris, your setup looks fabulous today. Your lighting is awesome. Thanks for hanging around, John and Harshit. And John, take the dog for a walk. We'll have to put him in the credits if he ever barks. That's, that's going to be a thing. Do you have a mute button for that dog? <laughs> I was at a city council meeting earlier this week.